So I was, I was going to tell you like this this little story. I was going to say, you know, um, Sean Jones and I were coming down to the church tonight, and we were arguing about element policy so vigorously that we overshot it by 120 miles. And we, if you watch the news, uh, okay. So the lady who did announcement this morning, she says that you know fall is her favorite time of year because this morning she got up and she made uh, pumpkin pancakes. I'm like, ooh, I, I like uh, pumpkin pie. You know what? Why fall is like the greatest time in the world? You know? Anybody know what next weekend is? Next weekend is daylight savings time. You know what happens next week? We get an extra hour of sleep. The glory of the Lord comes down and it is good. That's what I'm telling you. So if you show up Next week, and don't change your clocks, you'll probably be about on time. So. Why don't you guys stand there reading God's Word? This is Psalm 137, verse 1. And it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Let's pray. Father, uh, tonight I ask that you would make us a people who remember you and the things that you have so graciously given us that we would not forget like we so often do, that our hearts be drawn fully into the place that you call us to so that we would be your people, you would be our God, and the world would know who you are because of how we live. Amen. Have a seat. If you are new for the very first time, we are going through a six-week series called Empire. Uh, If you are new, uh, I would encourage you to go to our website, ourelement.org, and get all the back things of this so you'll be up to speed because tonight's almost going to feel like a transitional message for you because we're going to transition from where we are into looking at Jesus next week, and it's just got to go with it. So hopefully, if you're new, you'll understand this. Uh, I'm just just hoping. Uh, We're looking at uh, what God intends for his people. This is a biblical and historical look at what God called his people into, what they were to be a part of and what they did with that calling and what we still today are also called into. What does God intend for the people who call themselves by his name to actually live and look like? Uh, If you have a Bible, open to Amos chapter 6. That's in the Old Testament. It's one of the last 12 books, one of the minor prophets, a guy named Amos. Uh, Today we're we're looking at a place called Babylon. Babylon's a bad place. Anytime the Rolling Stones decide the name and album for the place where you live, it's a bad place. I don't got much comedy tonight, okay? So you got to laugh if I give you something. I'm just so Amos chapter 6, uh, Amos just like the cookies. So he's famous because he's Amos. I'm just helping you get there. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Get there. Okay, here we go. It says this, Amos 6, 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Now, don't leave Amos. Keep your finger there because we'll be coming back to that in just a second. What, what happens basically so far is that God shows up to his people. They are in slavery in Egypt. Okay? They're in Egypt. They're in slavery. While they're in slavery, they cry out, God, hear our cry. We are oppressed. Uh, the words that scripture uses is they are bitter because of their oppression. And so God hears their cry, and he brings these people out, and he takes them down to a place called Sinai. And at Sinai, he gives them a mission and an identity. He says, you will be my people. You will be the message to the world. The message is not something you will carry on your back. The message will be who you are, that I brought you out of slavery, and I have given you a message, and you take this, and the way you live that, it's how people will know my goodness and who I am. He says, show the world what I am like. You will be my priests. Eventually, they end up in a place called Jerusalem. And what happens in Jerusalem is these former slaves end up building their empire 
on the backs of slaves. What eventually happens is God takes them to a place called Babylon. Babylon. And so you see this whole little thing as it goes. Now, we talked about when they were in Jerusalem, what happens when the oppressed become the oppressors and they forget where they came from and they start perpetrating the same evil acts that were once done to them they start doing that on other people. It's much like a, like a boy who comes from a home uh, that's very abusive and, and he wants a girlfriend or a wife and one day he gets one then he starts abusing her as well. Uh, it's like a girl who grows up in a home and she has an overbearing mother and she says, oh, I'm never going to be like that. And then she becomes a wife and she becomes a nagging or controlling wife. It's like a, it's like a child who sees uh, drugs destroy their home because of addiction and then they grow up and they become an addict as well. It's the same thing that happens. They are people who lived in slavery and then they got their own kingdom and they actually had slaves themselves. And so we looked at what happened when Solomon later in the middle of this actually starts to become an arms dealer. And he had slaves build his military installations and his palaces. And we saw that he is so off of the mission that God actually gave his people. And we looked at what happened when people get so comfortable that preserving our own way of life becomes more important than hearing the cry of people who are oppressed in the world. And it becomes just about protecting our own happiness. And we asked if there's in any way that you and I are building a little empire on the backs of other people. If we are so consumed with our own comfort that we don't hear the cry of other people. In Jerusalem, what happens, it becomes more and more and more about them. And so God raises up these prophets. You have like Nahum and Habakkuk and Haggai and Zephaniah. These are the guys with like wild hair and eyes bulging and they're freaking out and they're yelling, this is not right. Except much more like manly than my little squeaky voice. You're like, this is not right. And they come in just freaking out and pointing the finger, telling everybody to, to straighten up. Masses are hungry. You have slaves. It's not what God had in mind. He calls the entire kingdom of Israel at this point on the carpet saying, shape up. Amos is one of these guys that comes and does this. Amos chapter 6, again, verse 1 goes like this. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. You know, the Zion is Jerusalem. Complacent means it's all about you. And to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. He says, woe to you because you have forgotten the needy. And Amos is just building a head of steam. Amos is a farmer. He grew his own food, and so he lived humbly. Verse 4, he says, You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and, and, and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You live in the park and you don't have a job, and you play your guitar and hopes chicks will really dig you because you play the guitar. Maybe. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Grieve over the ruin of Joseph. This is a breach or calamity. That's what these words mean. In, in the book of Genesis, Joseph's brothers, they get jealous of him. And so they throw him in this pit. And as Joseph is starving in this pit, they eat and drink and be merry on the outside of the pit. This is what God is saying Israel has started to do. They are supposed to hear the cry of the world around them. And instead, they're eating, drinking, and being merry and forgetting everybody else's needs around them when they were to hear the cry and make a difference in the world around them. Verse 12, at the end of verse 12, it says, But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. Now, last week, in Jerusalem, when their kingdom is at its apex, the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon in 1 Kings 10.9, and she says, Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you a king to maintain justice and righteousness. 
God has given you, always given you, so you can spread it around. You spread God's love to the ends of the earth. The Queen of Sheba understood what these people's calling actually were. And God, through Amos, turns it on its head, and he says, you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. Ouch. Ouch. These are very tough words for some people. Amos's rant is amazing. It goes on for nine chapters. It's completely brilliant. He picks apart the hardness of people's hearts. Go to Amos chapter 8, two chapters over. Amos chapter 8, verse 4. He says this, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? When will all these festivals be over that honor God so we can go back to making money? That's what that says. Skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. So if you have wheat and it falls on the floor, they'd sweep it up, you get dirt in the wheat, they put it on a thing and sell you the dirt with the wheat and charge you the same price. And these, these guys say, this is not right. This is what you're doing to the world around you. It is not right. You must shape up. Amos, this is written in poetry, but there's also an historical record. Go to the book of 2 Chronicles. You're like, I've never even looked at these books. This is good. Go to the book of 2 Chronicles, some chapters to the left there. Just okay. Still Old Testament. Psalms, go left. Okay. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. You're like, I didn't even bring a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, talk to me when we're done, I will give you a Bible. Then you can bring it and be like, crap, now I've got to turn these pages. It'd be great. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. Verse 15. This is, this is uh, God now, now speaking in uh, what has happened historically to these people. See, God gets put in a very awkward position because he has called these people his people. He says, you are my people. You will be my message to the world. The way the world is supposed to know about this God is how they live. Is that something outside or is that on stage? Whoa. You know, it, the, world, the way the world's going to know who you are is, is how that you, who God is, is how you live. And so they're supposed to live and show the world this. And what do you do if, if you're God, which is not a question I will ask you very often, okay? What do you do if you are God and this people who are supposed to show the world who you are and claim your name do anything but show the world who you are? What do you then do with that? What do you do? Second Chronicles 36, 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, this is their ancestors. This would look all the way back to Egypt. This is the Lord, the God that brought them out. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. So God sends his prophets, his people to go and listen, shape up. You've got to hear what is going on. Listen, you're not living how God calls you to live. And he sends, God sends these people over and over and over because he is a good dad who loves people again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set the fire to God. God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And in verse 20, it says, and he carried into, what's the word? Exile. He carried into exile to Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became, what's the word? Servants. 
This is the word in Hebrew, abed. And this word means slaves. Slaves. They became slaves to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. They start in Egypt as slaves and they cry out. They are rescued. They receive a mission and an identity at Sinai. They build an empire in Jerusalem and forget the call of God. Then they are conquered by a king who hauls them to Babylon as slaves. Open the Bible to Psalm 137. If you set your Bible down, it's like, and open right to it. It's like Psalms right in the middle of the Bible. Okay? Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is a poem written while they're in Babylon. It lets us know what life was like for them. There's lots of books written in Babylon. This is just uh, one of them and one of the uh, things of poetry. Psalm 137, verse 1. You're like, hey, this sounds like a song on the radio. Maybe a little bit. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. This is Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps. So they take their instruments and they put them down because they have no reason to sing anymore. For there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? They have no reason to sing. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. This is because they have now become irrelevant. I mean, they were it for a while. Everyone was coming to them. But the problem is they became full of it and they became selfish and greedy and oppressors of others and a foreign superpower then comes in and kills them and hauls them off to exile into slavery. Now, what did they lose when they got hauled off? You know, they lost their kingdom. The first thing they lose in this is they lost their intimacy with God. If you go back to the week of Egypt, when we talked about the week of Egypt, we, we looked at the Garden of Eden and how man sinned against God and God placed them outside of the garden because of their sin. In the same way, they have this land that God brought them into and now they have grievously sinned over and over and over against God after he sent prophet after prophet to them. And so what does God do? He places them outside of their land, just like Adam and Eve were placed outside of the garden. But this is a people that you have to understand. I mean, God came and he spoke to these people. He gave them this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, just like Indiana Jones. Okay? The, the Ark of the Covenant. This is representative of God's presence with his people. These people carried a representation of God with them wherever they went. God promised to travel with these people. The God who makes the entire universe travels with these people. This is amazing. And they're weeping. It is bitter because they have lost their temple and they believe they've lost their connection with God, but they really haven't. The second thing they lost is their institutions. This is Jerusalem, the temple. They, they would take this ark and they placed it in the temple. Can you imagine? You build a temple to God, you place this ark in the temple, and then God actually comes down in your presence in, in this cloud and he covers the temple. You're like, holy cow, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> You know, you get to see this, and God, and you visibly see this. And what has happened is they now have lost everything. There, there are social structures all surrounding the temple. There is not any separation of church and state in Israel. Their very identity hinged on the activity of the temple. It says he, Nebuchadnezzar carried into Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and they are now bitter. Another thing they lost is their power and their wealth. It was a confusion and misuse of power and wealth that brought this judgment upon them. I mean, God is not afraid of money. God is not afraid of you having money or authority or power or things like that. But you have to understand that He is the one who gives it to you. It is God that gives us those things. He blesses people so that they can be a blessing. What it says of Nebuchadnezzar is, He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants. And they are bitter, and they are sad because they have lost everything. 
And I know I am beating this point to death, but you got to get it to understand where we're going and everything to make sense. In Egypt, they are in a foreign land as slaves, oppressed by a foreign king. They end up in Babylon, a foreign land as slaves, oppressed by a foreign king. The birth of the Jewish people begins in slavery. This whole idea where we say the word redemption, the word redemption always goes back to this idea of these people being brought out of Egypt from their bondage to be set free. Redemption, they are brought out. And the Old Testament ends, the whole Testament actually ends with many of these people still not back in Israel, still under the oppression of a foreign king. Begins and ends with the same type of conditions. They end up where they started. And so, if you've been here for most of the series or even just one of the weeks, you've probably heard me say this. What do we know about slaves who cry out? God always hears the cry. God always hears the cry of the oppressed. Always. Scripture always seems tilted to show you that God hears the cry. I mean, maybe you're somebody who's like, my my life is in turmoil and I can't figure it out. I'm hungry. God hears that. I'm in despair. God hears that. I need I have all these spiritual needs. God hears that. I need restoration between God and I. Yes, you do. And God hears that. Maybe you're in a foreign land and, and you don't even have clean drinking water and you cry out. God hears that. In Egypt, it is this cry that inaugurates redemptive history. And now they're crying out in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. When people weep, what do they do? They cry. They cry. Anybody ever cried? Okay, like three of you. All right, okay. Okay, that's what you, you cry, you weep, you cry. They cried in Egypt, now they cry in Babylon. So the first cry starts redemptive history, and the Jew, Jews in Jesus' day would all see it that way. And now they're crying again in another spot by the rivers of Babylon. This is like our spiritual journeys for a lot of people. When you cry out to God for the first time, you're like, I hit bottom, I had no way out, I was overwhelmed. I could not do this on my own. I was a slave to my own desires. And then we cry out. Jesus, if you're there, and Jesus says, if I'm there, of course I'm here. And Jesus comes to the rescue like he always does. There seems to be a moment in everybody's spiritual life when you cry out, and God hears that cry. And it seems to me, when most people cry out in that moment, it almost feels like we are closer to God at that moment than any other moment in our spiritual journey. When things are tough and hard and we cry out, it's like, wow. God is with me and God is walking with me because God is a God who hears the cry. When we cry out or we hear the cry, we are with God. If we have no needs or act like we don't have any needs or no awareness of our condition, physical or spiritual, then we'll think we don't need God. And we all do. The cry inaugurates the story, not just for the Israelites, but for us as well. I mean, these people are crying out, God, this isn't how it's supposed to end. We're in Babylon. We're supposed to be from Jerusalem. We're supposed to be there. The temple has been destroyed. Where are you? And it seems that's where the story again starts. God is the God of the oppressed. He longs to intervene, redeem, and restore, and take the broken and bind them. But we have to be a people who trust Him in that. This can be very disturbing for us as a people. Because if we understand that God is the God of the oppressed, and He always hears the cry, and He wants us to be His people, then we should hear the cry as well also. But sometimes we don't want to hear the cry because the cry is very hard to hear. Because when we hear it, we have to do something about it. And we can't just put our blinders on and walk away from it. We have to do something. I mean, last week I brought it down to something as simple as where our shirts are made. That's simple. And many times when we get so comfortable, God will throw something in our life. He will haul us off to Babylon 
And we'll be like, what is going on? And we will cry out again. And God will say, yes, this is the place you need to be so you can hear the cry. I told you this, that there are 2,303 verses in Scripture that deal with the poor and the oppressed. This is something that is on the heart of God. And some of us have no idea what it even means. Jesus says, it is hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And most of us go, yeah, it's hard for those rich people to enter the kingdom of Rich people are rich. And we have to actually stop and ask our questions. You know, could we be the rich man? Could we be that guy? See, I'm not telling you to go be poor. I don't want you to be poor. I don't think you're going to help anybody if you live in a box. Okay? I, I don't want you to give all your money to the homeless guy in the corner when he says, we'll work for food when food equals booze. Okay? That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm talking about people who are truly in need because there are people truly in need in our city, in our nation, in our world. This, for you, it could be as simple as having a Compassion International kid or a World Vision kid or as complex as a traveling to other nations and installing water filtration units. It could be as simple as you going down and helping out the Salvation Army. Could be as simple as you doing a backpack drive to get some backpacks for uh, the women at the battered women's shelter for their kids who have to go to school. It could be as simple as that, but doing something to hear the cry because we all live in an empire of some sort. And we have to ask, could we or the society we live in actually be hurting the world around us? Uh, it's a good question. Don't get me wrong, okay, because I love America. I think America is great. I've been to a few third world countries, and I'm always glad to be back here. I don't understand why people just can't put your toilet paper in the toilet and flush it in a third world country. I don't understand that. You know, I want to flush my toilet paper. I want to be able to eat something and drink some water from the fountain and not get sick and puke for a week. You know, I, so I, I love America. <laughs> don't get me wrong with that. But the scriptures always seem to be tilted towards the underside of power. The underside of power. It is slaves and exiles and, and prostitutes and, and tax collectors. The kingdom of God is made up of these people. And when Jesus is born, what you see is this message is actually entrusted to shepherds. This is the bottom of the bottom of the society. There's no room at the end. And so, so Mary and Joseph, they're not the privileged. It's teenage peasants who can't get a room at the hotel. The first person to see Jesus risen from the dead is a woman. And in this day, that's like the bottom of the bottom of the social food chain is, is the woman. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and flawless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The real thing, like Coca-Cola, the real thing is when you hear the cry and you do something about it. Jesus himself is placed in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. It seems like the writers of scriptures are, are always saying to you, Do you get it? Do you understand? He's in a feeding trough. His parents can't get a hotel room. Shepherds are the ones that announce that he's coming. Look at these teenage kids, questionable circumstances. I mean, Jesus didn't come as, as a Hendrix or a, or a Kennedy. He comes to these poor teenage peasants. I think in, in one sense, you and I have it kind of hard. Because when we don't have a whole lot of needs, it's hard to understand the needs of others. It's hard to have a true dependency upon who God is. When your fridge is full of food and, and you say, oh, I got nothing to eat, I'm just going to go out. It's very hard you know, to, to understand what it's to understand hunger. You know, it's, it's hard when you have cars and houses and, and stuff where our government makes TV a right, where they will subsidize your digital converter box so you can watch TV. It's crazy. It's just crazy. I, I really don't get it. When, when every politician who runs is like, oh, and I'll give you this and I'll give you that and I'll give you this. And if you ever look at the kingdom of God, it's hard. Jesus says, you work. 
When you get comfortable, you forget who God is. And God is always calling us to the tough places to do the tough thing because that is how we hear the cry. I am not trying to make you feel guilty at all. I believe God gives very good things to his people. I wish all of you would be rich. I really do. You can give me millions of dollars and if you want to... <laughs> I, I think it'd be great. But the question comes down to what do we do with those things that God gives us? That's the question. Do, do, we, always, do we feel like we even have enough? Are we always looking for more? Are we ever satisfied? And it's really hard when half the world lives on less than two U.S. dollars a day and they can't even enter that conversation. This is why Jesus says how hard it is. I mean, sometimes Jesus teaches and feeds people and he goes across a lake to the other side by a boat, sometimes by other means. You know, and, and people follow him and they show up. And why do they show up? Because he feeds them. And then he preaches the gospel to them. But he feeds them because they're hungry. God is the God of the oppressed, the forgotten, those on the underside of power. Scripture never, ever condemns wealth. But it always reminds us that it is given so we can spread it around. Uh, these are two legitimate needs. And sometimes people think I'm, I'm mean and stuff, but I don't think I am. But you know. We had a guy uh, came in last week, and he started asking for some stuff. And I, so I usually ask people questions when they do this, and so I asked this guy a few questions. Um, and in the end of the conversation, I said, you know what? Uh, you're young, you're healthy, and you need to go get a job. Because that's the best thing I could tell him. That's the gospel. Paul says, those who will not work shall not eat. And he's a young, able-bodied guy. He's not crippled. I'm like, dude, get up. Go find a job. That's what you need to do. There are people with legitimate needs. And if, and if we are always being sucked dry people who don't have legitimate needs, the people with legitimate needs are never going to get help. And so if you, I mean, seriously, when somebody holds up a sign on the side of the road and they look totally able-bodied, you know, give me money for food, it's like, did you, do you have a family when you lost your job and you're trying to feed your family? I understand that. But if you're just doing that because you can't get a job, you need to get up and get a job. That's scripture. But there are legitimate needs that we need to go and take care of around us. Again, underside of power. Jesus hung, hangs on a cross. He is buried. He rises three days later. The cross is an execution device that was invented by the Persians. It was then perfected by the Romans. It's a torture device used by one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world who is trying to protect what they have and their comfort, and they kill anybody who stands against them and their comfort. The central image that we now take of the Christian faith is a symbol of death that was used upon people who stood in opposition to this empire. Jesus stands up, and, and he says, This is not right. This is not right. And he goes to his death like all the prophets of old, saying, this is not right. God brings people out of slavery. They go to Jerusalem. They become proud and indifferent. They end up back in slavery. At the end of the Old Testament, some people have returned to Israel and they've started to rebuild the temple. But many more still live in foreign lands under foreign kings. And the Old Testament just comes to a stop at the end of the book of Malachi and says, there's a Redeemer that's coming. There's a Redeemer that's coming. Actually, all the way back in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God through Moses records these words in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. It says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Well, what is that? Another Moses? Another Exodus? Yeah. Jesus taking and leading people's hearts out of self-centeredness and into the kingdom of God. In Babylon, they, they live in this place and, and there is silence and they believe that God has actually failed. The one they set their affection on is let them lose their home, let them lose Jerusalem. And they again are suffering and in slavery. And we are reared on Hollywood where everything's supposed to have an happy ending. And this is like a Greek tragedy play. But they also have this thing called expectancy. And they are waiting for this Redeemer to come. 
God has a plan for everything that was lost in the garden. This, this second cry that, that comes about by them sitting by the waters of Babylon. They start to cry again. God hears this cry. And God's people start to think about all that they have lost and what they did to lose it. And they start to think, what if we got it all back again? What would our lives then be like? We wouldn't miss the point then. We would do the mission that God calls us to. In 586, the temple is destroyed. For decades, prophets come, and they speak about justice, where Israel, Israel made it about themselves. And they begin to imagine what would happen if they were able to get it right again the next time through, if they got another chance to actually serve God. And their hope becomes to be centered around this idea of the son of David. Solomon is the first son of David. He, he gets them to the pinnacle of their kingdom. And yet he starts the backslide on the other side of it. And so what now they do is they begin to look for a new son of David. In our words, to lead another exodus in the words of Deuteronomy. Isaiah 61 gives the personality profile for what the son of David will be like. Isaiah 61 says this, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Who's the poor? All of us. We are all spiritually needy. We are all lost without him. Isaiah says, when it's redone and it is done right, this is what the son of David will look like. The underside of power receives blessing. The true son of David will come. He will rescue us from sin of our indifference, the things that have broken us. And so we will be able to follow him and truly show what the, wor the world what he is like as his priest. It says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to pull us out of our sins, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The first exodus brought these people out of their slavery and gave them a calling. We also get this calling. Israel then lost their identity and they confused their calling. So God gives them some promises. I will give you a new hope and a new king and a new exodus. The question the Old Testament actually really ends with is this. Can you imagine what it will be like when the son of David comes and he fixes the mess that is the human heart and all the kingdoms that have been built because of the mess that is the human heart? That's the expectancy of New Testament writers, and I think that's the expectancy of Old Testament writers. Because you see this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. It says, Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. So they live in Egypt 430 years. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year gap agreed to by almost all scholars. Okay? They're in Egypt 430 years, this exile in Egypt. At the, you know, in, the, in the Old Testament, some of them are still not back in, in the kingdom. So if it's not physical, it is spiritual. And they're crying out for the son of David. 400-year gap. Matthew and Luke begin with infancy narratives. And then a rabbi would usually start his public ministry around 30 years of age. Interesting. 430 years. And Jesus shows up in Matthew 12, 28. And he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's amazing, amazing. Jesus says, it is time for a new exodus because we are all people who have added to the sin of the world. I will tell you this. Yesterday, I treated my wife like garbage. I was mad at her about this thing, and I was like, you know, and I feel really bad. And, you know, how, how do you make that better? You can't, you know. You just apologize and go on and leave everything in Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus comes to redeem us because we have all made a mess of everything. We all have. 
and he comes to redeem us. He longs to lead us out of our bondage to our mediocrity and our comfort and ourselves and lead us into the kingdom of God. If you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 24, and we'll end with this. In Luke chapter 24, there's a couple of disciples walking down a road. Jesus shows up, and he starts talking to them, but they don't know it's Jesus, which I always think is great. It's a great party trick. I would like to know it. I'd like to be able to have this trick and go to people and go, what do you think about that, Aaron? They'll be like, oh, he's terrible. Then I'd be like, ding, it's me. <laughs> but these guys are like, you know, we thought Jesus was the one, but he got killed. Luke 24, 22. They keep talking. They say, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. In verse 25, this is Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So he refers to his story as all that the prophets had spoken. It says, Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus tells his story from Moses and the prophets. How does he explain himself in terms of Moses and the prophets unless he says, We were slaves in Egypt. We cried out, and God heard this cry, and he brought us out, and God gave us identity. It is all about grace. God says, don't forget grace, compassion to the ends of the earth. But our people forgot the passion to take the grace of God to the ends of the earth, and they built their own kingdom, and they stayed comfortable, and they tried to you know, preserve everything they had. But in the end, they were crushed and carried off, and they have been crying out ever since, and I am now here. That means Jesus came to lead us all into the kingdom of God. The Messiah comes to lead a second exodus of people's hearts to get them stopped so focused on ourselves and placed upon who God is. He calls us to come out of our oppression and our bondage to sin and our love of indifference and into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus comes and does. Next week, we end this whole six-week thing on, on Jesus, which is which is beautiful, and it's great, and I'll have more jokes next week for you. <laughs> but I know this week is very heavy, and, and it needs to be. Because cause this, is, this is almost like the, the Friday before Easter. Because, I mean, this is, it's like everything. We have added to the sin of the world, and yet Jesus comes to set up a kingdom and invites all of us into it and live how he calls us to live. I mean, he says, I am now here. And we cannot be people who tell anybody else about the liberty of Christ unless we have first experienced ourselves. We need to be a free people. We do. And so what we do now, and, and to help you pull this down onto a personal level for you, but I hope it doesn't just stay there. I hope it moves outside of you to the people you come into contact with in the world. Well, the band's going to come up, and we're going to do some songs. And we invite you to sing these songs with us that you would take some moments where you are at and you would pray and you would say, God, how have I been a person who has lived in this kingdom of comfort and not sought you? Where have I been more concerned about me and my comfort and not you? Maybe you take this time and you, and you look at your life and you see where God has taken you you know, where he called and pulled you out of your sin and yes, you're free and he gives you a, a purpose. Then all of a sudden you get sidetracked and you get distracted and you start doing your own thing and you start walking. So God then takes you through to Babylon to a very tough time in your life. 
where you start to cry out again. And Jesus comes and he goes, you're my child. Come home. Come home. That's what he calls you to. Take some time to figure out where those things are in your life tonight. I mean, this is like one of those times where it's like heavy. Spend some time with God. Figure it out. There'll be some deacons in the back of the room. And if you are somebody who can't hear the cry of others, or maybe you're somebody who's crying out and you need prayer, go pray with them. They would love to pray with you. And we're going to worship God through communion. Uh, you come up and you, and you take this cracker and you, and you break it, which represents Christ's body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which represents his blood that was shed for you and I, so that we can be these people who live in his kingdom, so that we can be redeemed. We worship God uh, through giving. There's an offering box on the side wall and on the very back, and we give because God gave so much to us, and giving is part of our worship. And then when we're done, there's still food in the back. We made sure James didn't eat it all. So there's food in the back, and you guys can get to know each other as the kingdom of God. You get to spur one another on to what God calls us to. How do you hear the cry? Are you crying out? And you can help each other to live the life that God calls you to live. James is going to come and pray for us. All right, well, you guys pray with me. Oh. God, we thank you for coming. We thank you for coming and for, for hearing the cry, for, for hearing our cry and for being a God who cares about the cry of your people, who comes and restores us, who comes in and provides. God, I pray that we would not be so concerned with us. We would not be so concerned with our wants to not listen to the cries of those around us. That we would long to be a blessing to those who are around us, just as you are a blessing to us. God, thank you for breaking down our walls. Although it may hurt sometimes, we thank you for coming and for taking down our walls that we put up against you and for not only taking them down but for walking through that process with us for being there for holding us while we try and run God make us into people who long to meet the needs of the needy who long to live your word who long to live your gospel who walk through life hand in hand with you and who bring your kingdom here now. We thank you for the opportunity to do this and the opportunity to be in fellowship with you. In Jesus' name.